seven missing children in California between 1956 and 1968. One connecting puzzle piece. Welcome to State of Missing. Welcome back. We are on part two of California. Um, and I'm sorry it has taken me so long to get to part two. I told you in part one that I would try and get this episode out in a week, and obviously it's been a little bit longer than that. <clears throat> As I had mentioned before, I had been sick, um, so I sat down several times to actually try and record this particular episode, but I couldn't do it because um, I was having some really bad dry mouth and um, my voice was cracking so it, it really wouldn't have been good so I just decided to prolong it and wait until I felt a little bit better and I could you know actually record something of good quality for you um, so in part one we talked about Humboldt County I'm not gonna tell you what the connection in all of today's cases are yet uh, when we get to the end I'll you know, tell you what the connection is and we'll get into it. Um, but I want to, I really want to see without you cheating, I really want to see if anybody can just guess the connection straight off. Um, so we have seven cases in this episode. Uh, all of the cases in today's episode are juvenile cases. So if that's not the thing that you're into, if you don't like hearing the juvenile cases, you know, maybe this episode isn't for you. Um, if you don't mind, it's going to be a pretty interesting episode uh, if you do stick around. So let's go ahead and get into the first case of the day, which is actually um, a double disappearance, oddly enough. Um, this is the disappearance of Donald Lee Baker and Brenda Jo Howell. Uh, we'll start with Donald. Uh, he is case number 2256 DMCA in the Doe Network, case number MP4625 in NamUs. And the NCMEC is 1152953. He is a Caucasian male born on October 17, 1943, and he was 12 at the time of his disappearance. He would be 78 now. Then he stood at 5 foot 1 and 100 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes, and he was last seen wearing a white t shirt, blue jeans, and a burgundy jacket with stripes on the sleeves. Donald would also go by Don or Donnie. Brenda Jo Howell is case number 2123DFCA in the Doe Network. She is case number MP4626 in NamUs, and her NCMEC is 1152957. She is a Caucasian female born on August 19, 1943. She, too, was 12 at the time of her disappearance and would also be 78 now. She stood at 4 foot 9 and 95 pounds, and she had brown hair and brown eyes. On August 6th of 1956, Donald and Brenda, who were friends, um, went for a bike ride together. The pair rode their bike to the San Gabriel Canyon area near Glendora Mountain Road, and they were never seen again. A day later, Donald's jacket and Brenda's bicycle were found near Morris Dam, which was a quarter of a mile south of where they were last seen. 
Donald's bicycle was eventually located um, about a month after the pair disappeared, but I could not find anywhere where it actually said that the bicycle was located. So I don't know if it was in the same spot or somewhere different. So the initial belief was that the pair had run away from home together. Eventually though, uh, that theory changes. At the time of his disappearance, Donald was living with his parents in the 5700 block of Rockdale Avenue in Azusa, California. At the time of her disappearance, Brenda was visiting her married sister who lived in the 5700 block of Rockdale Avenue in Azusa, California. So that is presumably how Donald and Brenda became friends. Um, you know, how it goes, you know, kids in the same area tend to gravitate towards each other and become friends. Brenda normally resided in Fort Bragg, California. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office is the investigating agency in their disappearance. And I think the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office is actually the investigating agency in most of the disappearances that I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, I think there's one or two that may be another agency. Uh, but of course, I'm going to tell you at the end of each case, as always. We're going to move right along into the next disappearance um, of Thomas Eldon Bowman. He is case number 1267 DMCA in the Doe Network, case number MP5867 in NamUs, and his NCMEC is 985024. Thomas, or Tommy, as he is called, is a Caucasian male born on January 6th of 1949. He was eight at the time of his disappearance, and he would be 73 now. At eight years old, he stood at four foot tall and 50 pounds with blonde hair and brown eyes. And he was last seen wearing a blue plaid t-shirt, blue jeans, brown shoes, and a belt with a Davy Crockett buckle. Tommy has a has gold uh, bands on his on the back of his teeth and several silver fillings and two of his teeth were missing at the time of his disappearance. Tommy also has a receding chin and his ears protrude. On March 23rd of 1957, Tommy was walking with his cousin and other family cousins, I'm sorry, and other family members on a trail in Arroyo Cinco Canyon in Altadena, uh, I'm sorry, California. Eight-year-old Tommy tells his relatives that he was going to run ahead of them to the car and he'd wait for them there. Little Tommy takes off and when his relatives finally do reach the vehicle, Tommy was nowhere around. He was never seen again. An extensive search produced no clues as to his whereabouts. A week after his disappearance, a letter was mailed to his house that said Tommy was alive and well and being cared for by an unidentified male. There was another letter sent to a newspaper stating that Tommy was living in Oklahoma. It remains unknown if either of these letters were authentic and neither one, had, neither one of the letters has led to Tommy's whereabouts. So once again, in this case, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office is the investigating agency. Now, I know it seems like we're going through these cases pretty quick, um, and we kind of are, but I'm not giving you great detail 
about these cases and that's for a reason. Um, but if you are paying attention to all of the cases, at least thus far, you should at least start to see some similarities and um, should be running your own theory about where this is going. Keep that in mind as we get into the disappearance of Bruce Howard Creeman. Bruce is case number 2255 DMCA in the Doe Network, case number MP4624 in NamUs, and his NCMEC is 1156437. Bruce is a Caucasian male, born on July 21st of 1953. He was six at the time of his disappearance, which makes him the youngest of the cases we're going to cover today. He would be 68 now. He stood at four foot five and 65 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. He was last seen wearing blue jeans and a white t-shirt with either um, Summer Fun Club or Summer Fun Camp printed on the front. Bruce was last seen on July 12th of 1960. At the time, he was camping with a group of approximately 80 children and adults from the Los Angeles YMCA near Buckhorn Flat in the Angeles National Forest. Uh, he was playing with two other kids about 300 yards from the campsite when Bruce became separated from the other two kids. The group realized Bruce was missing only minutes after he disappeared and they were quick to conduct a search of the area but it turned up no indications of his whereabouts. It was believed that Bruce had gotten lost and or possibly injured in the mountains, and a massive search was conducted in the days following his disappearance. The area he disappeared from is very rugged, with many chasms and cliffs, so the theory was that he wandered away and got lost and hurt, and it is very possible that it, that is the case. So Bruce was actually born in Brooklyn, New York, but at the time of his disappearance in 1960, he and his family were living in the 11,000 block of Dempsey Avenue in Granada Hills, California. Once again, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is the investigating agency in this case. We're moving right along here with the disappearance of Karen Lynn Tompkins. This is case number 1003 DFCA in the Doe Network, case number MP6735 in NamUs, and her NCMEC is 952801. Karen is a Caucasian female born on July 25th of 1950. She was 11 at the time of her disappearance and she would be 71 now. She was 4 foot 11 and 55 pounds with blonde hair and blue eyes. Her hair was cut short with bangs at the time of her disappearance. Uh, she has freckles across the bridge of her nose and a brown colored birthmark in the middle of her forehead half an inch below her hairline. Karen's teeth are uneven and her right eye tooth protrudes. She was last seen wearing royal blue shorts with a white printed band on the bottom, a white sleeveless blouse, a white knit cardigan sweater, blue and white socks, blue rubber sandals, a pearl necklace with a clear plastic pendant containing a mustard seed, and a new yellow Hanover watch. Karen was last seen on Friday, August 18th of 1961 in Torrance, 
California. Karen and her eight-year-old little brother were both attending a summer arts and crafts class at Halldale Avenue Elementary School at 215, uh, oh, I'm sorry, 215th Street and Haldell Avenue in Harbor Gateway. On this particular day, their dog had followed them to class, so Karen's little brother took the dog back home before the class was over. Karen stayed behind to finish the class. The teacher and other students saw Karen leave when the class ended at 5.30 p.m. She was carrying two toy-covered wagons, which were the crafts that she and her brother had made in the class. The walk from the school to Karen's house was only four blocks. A classmate rode their bike alongside Karen as she walked home, but this was only for the first few minutes of the trip. When Karen didn't arrive home by 6, the police were contacted. A few days after Karen's disappearance, a 40-year-old man was arrested for kidnapping uh, Karen when the police found bloodstains on his underclothes. He denied having anything to do with her disappearance, and he was eventually released due to a lack of evidence connecting him to Karen's presumed abduction. In 1961, Karen was a good student who liked to play with Barbie dolls. Uh, Karen lived with her younger brother, mother, grandmother, and infant sister. Her father was stationed at sea with the U.S. Navy, but he returned home when his daughter was reported missing. About a year later, in 1962, an 11-year-old girl named Dorothy Gill Brown went missing. Dorothy disappeared only blocks away from Karen disappeared, and like Karen, um, Dorothy was blonde and 11 years old. They also both disappeared around the same time of day. The unfortunate or, you know, maybe fortunate thing was that Dorothy was found the next day in the ocean off of Marina del Rey, California, 30 miles from Torrance, where she was abducted from. Dorothy had been sexually assaulted and drowned. The story of her death is a lot sadder than I'll uh, tell you here or right now, at least. Um, so we will get into it a little bit more later. So police believe that Karen and Dorothy's disappearances are related, but Dorothy's murder and Karen's disappearance both remain unsolved. So if you know anything about Karen's whereabouts, you can contact, once again, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. This next case was the one case I was able to find more information on than the others. Uh, this is the disappearance of Ramona Irene Price. For some reason, she is not on the Doe Network and the only case of this series that is not. But her case number in NamUs is MP11687 and her NCMEC is 11767716. I know I didn't mention it before, and I assume if you listen to to this podcast, you know that uh, all of the cases, most of the cases that I cover are on the Charlie Project. Uh, so most of the information that I get on these cases, it, that's where it's from, the Charlie Project. Anyway, 
Uh, Ramona is a Caucasian female born on June 24th of 1954. She was seven at the time of her disappearance and would be 67 now. She stood at four foot tall and 45 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. At the time, her hair was cut in a pixie style. She was last seen wearing a brown and white pullover sweater, brown pants with fine pinstripes and flip-flops. Ramona was last seen in the Santa Barbara, in Santa Barbara, California at 11 a.m. on September 2nd of 1961. Ramona and her family were in the process of moving from their home on Oak Avenue in Santa Barbara to a new house about seven miles away. Seven-year-old Ramona told her dad that she was going to walk to their new house in Walnut Park. Her father didn't take her seriously and didn't think she would actually just walk off. About 30 minutes later, Ramona's parents realized that she was missing. Police were contacted and Ramona was reported missing by her father that night. An extensive search commenced on the route that it was believed that she would have taken to get to the new house. That route was covered by searchers on foot, horseback, and helicopter. Over 200 volunteers participated in the search. Bloodhounds also assisted in the search and they managed to track Ramona's scent for about two miles down uh, Modoc Road near the 101 freeway, which was under construction at the time. The scent ended there. A witness came forward and said that they recalled seeing Ramona speaking with a man uh, inside of a vehicle. The vehicle was described as a faded blue colored 1953 to 54 vintage Plymouth. Um, the male driver was described as being between 30 and 40, year old, 40 years old, Caucasian, and having dark colored hair and eyes. They said he had a receding hairline and thin features. They said he was wearing an open collared sports shirt over a white undershirt, and Ramona was seen getting into his vehicle and he drove away. This person has never officially been identified. There was also two brothers who were known sex offenders that they looked at um, when it came to this disappearance. They both admitted that they had seen Ramona walking by their home and had even spoken to her briefly. They adamantly denied, however, harming or touching Ramona that day. They were both cleared as suspects after they both passed a polygraph exam. Ramona's parents have both died since her disappearance, but her older sister is still alive. Now the investigating agency in this case is Santa Barbara Police Department. So any information about Ramona's disappearance can be provided to them. So this is the last disappearance I'm going to talk about today. The disappearance of Roger Dill Madison. He is case number 3325DMCA in the Doe Network, case number MP4637 in NamUs, and his NCMEC is 1061964. Roger is a Caucasian male born on October 13th of 1953. He was 15 at the time of his disappearance and would be 68 now. He stood at 5 foot 8 and 145 pounds with brown hair and hazel eyes. He was last seen wearing a dark green sweater, 
light tan trousers, and black shoes. On December 16th of 1968, Roger and his dad were having an argument. The argument was about Roger smoking. I guess it was heated and Roger got on his motorcycle and drove away from the home in the uh, 14,500 block of Sayre Street in Selmar, California. He was never seen or heard from again. Given the circumstances of his leaving, it was believed that Roger had run away. In 1968, Roger loved animals and rock and roll. Uh, he enjoyed playing sports and the guitar, and he was close to his family, including his parents, two sisters, and two brothers. Since Roger's disappearance, both of his parents have died, but his siblings are still alive and looking for answers. The investigating agency here is Los Angeles uh, Police Department. So, what is the connection amongst all of these cases? I know that some of you already know because you either Googled it or you're just that well-versed in true crime. All of these missing children are believed to be the victims of known serial killer Mac Ray Edwards. So let's go ahead and get into this piece of shit not for his own sake, but for the sake of his victims and potential victims. Now, I'll start by saying he was convicted of three murders, but he confessed to six, and authorities believe his victim count could be as many as 20 or more. I told you about seven here, but three of the children we discussed uh, are three that he confessed to. We're also going to go back through at least some of the cases so I can tell you some information that I purposefully left out and that is why some of these cases were so short. Let's kind of start at the end. Um, on March 5th of 1970, three girls go missing from a house in Selmar, California. Uh, some places say that these girls were sisters. Uh, some suggest that they were friends having a sleepover, but I'm almost positive that they were sisters. But the parents wake up in the uh, morning and find that all three of the girls are gone. They called everywhere, uh, friends, schools, anywhere that the girls might be. From the appearance of things, it looked like someone may have broken into the house during the night, perhaps to burglarize it, and took the girls. That same day, two of the three girls um, escaped and ended up back at the home. Once they were safe, they told how two men had kidnapped them and the third girl was still being held. Before police could even get into investigating what happened, a man walked into... Um, the Los Angeles Police Department station, a substation, and went straight to the front desk. He surrendered a loaded revolver and announced that his name was Mac Ray Edwards, and he said, I have a guilt complex. The exact words, I have a guilt complex. He admitted to kidnapping the girls and ratted on his accomplice. He gave directions in the 
Angeles National Forest where the third girl could be found. As police officers head out to get the girl, he started telling investigators about the other matters he wanted to discuss. Uh, the girl was alive and mostly unharmed, by the way. Uh, I don't think anything was physically wrong with her, but definitely some you know, mental and emotional issues from that event, I'm sure. The series of confessions that followed started with his first victim, eight-year-old Stella Darlene Nolan. On June 20th of 1953, Edwards abducted Stella from her home in Norwalk. He took her to his house and molested her and then strangled her. He then threw sweet Stella's body off of a bridge in the Angeles National Forest. He returned to the site later and realized that Stella was still alive, so he stabbed her before burying her body along the Santa Ana Freeway, which was still uh, under construction at the time. And this just happened to be a site that Edwards was working on. You see, while Edwards was committing these horrible crimes, he was a heavy equipment operator contracted by a company that worked on freeways. You get where this is going? Stella's body was recovered after Edwards' confession. Uh, she was right where he directed law enforcement under the Santa Ana Freeway. The next murders he confessed to were that of Donald Lee Baker and Brenda Howell. They were the first two cases that I discussed the double disappearance. Brenda was Edward's sister-in-law. If you recall, I told you that at the time of her disappearance, Brenda was visiting her sister and therefore her brother-in-law, Mac Ray Edwards. On the morning of August 5th, 1956, Edwards paid the neighbor boy, Donald Lee Baker, $7 to take his sister-in-law on a morning bike ride. Once they left on their bicycles, Edward followed them in his truck. And once they were in a secluded area, Edward said he slit both of their throats. He said he dumped their bodies off Mount uh, Baldy Road in the Angeles National Forest. He did direct investigators to the location of their bodies, but the area turned up no signs of any remains. Because they never located Brenda or Donald's bodies, Edwards was not charged with their murders. In 2007, their cases were reopened and there was a renewed search to find the remains, but they still have not been located. Edwards then claimed he swore off murder for 12 years. He said he was able to control his urges. That is until November 28th of 1968. On that day, Edwards couldn't control the urge anymore, so in his desire to molest another girl, he lays in wait in a house in Granada Hills. He surprises 13-year-old Gary Rocha, who he shoots in the body and head and kills, leaving him in the home to be found by his family. The next confession Edward makes is to killing Roger Madison, not even a month after killing Gary Rocha. If you remember from the cases, Roger is the one who left on his motorcycle after 
uh, an argument with his dad. Edwards lived five houses down from Roger and was a regular visitor at Roger's house. Roger was also a classmate of Edward's adopted son, and the two boys were friendly. Edwards claimed that he lured Roger into an orange grove and tricked him into agreeing to be tied up as part of a game. Upon tying him up, Edward stabbed Roger to death. Edward said he then used a bulldozer to bury Roger's body. Now the location is a little confusing to me because different sources have say different roads. Some say Ventura 101 freeway, but on the Charlie project it says 23 freeway in Thousand Oaks, California. I don't know if this is the same place or two totally different places, but whatever the location actually is, obviously it was under construction at the time and that's why Edwards buried him there. Some sources also say that authorities didn't want to tear up the roadway to recover Roger's body, but some other sources say that they searched the area and found no evidence. What is definite though is that in 2008, authorities dug a 25-foot pit near the 23 freeway in search of Roger's body. The search was called off due to safety concerns. Um, they do believe, though, that they were really close to finding Roger before it was called off. Obviously, because Roger's body wasn't found, they didn't charge Edwards with his murder either. We're not done with the confessions, though. Um, Edwards claimed his next and last victim was a 13-year-old boy by the name of Donald Allen Todd. Donald Todd was reported missing in Pacoima on May 16th of 1969. I could not find a ton on Donald Todd's death, but what I did find suggested that Donald told his parents that he had a lawn mowing job. According to Edwards, they met up and go to a remote area where Edwards shoots Donald um, several times and kills him. Donald's body was found under a footbridge about 1.5 miles from his home. I don't know how long it took to find him, but I don't think it took, uh, you know, a long amount of time. And that is all of the murders that Edwards confessed to. Now, if you didn't already draw this conclusion, all of the murders were sexually motivated. Edwards called it an urge for sex. His M.O. was to select victims near the highways and freeways that he was building. He preferred to have the kill sites picked out and the burial site picked out ahead of time, and they had to be close together. Now, obviously, police don't think it was reasonable to believe that Edwards just didn't kill for 12 years. So that is where the, the belief that there is a higher count comes in. Thomas Bowman, Bruce Creeman, Karen Tompkins, Dorothy Brown, and Ramona Price are all believed to be a part of the larger victim list. The only one of those victims that there is any recent updates is in Ramona Price's case. In 2011, authorities searched for her body at the 101 freeway, but apparently they didn't find Ramona or any evidence. To add to this belief, 
uh, that there are more victims. Allegedly, Edwards told a jailer at one point that the number was 18, but Edwards refused to repeat this statement during subsequent interrogations. And there was um, also a fellow inmate who said that he and Edwards were friendly and Edwards would keep him awake at night with the stories of the children he had murdered. This person said that he recalled upwards of 20 stories. Uh, this person, <laughs> it's a really, it's a really interesting story that this person tells because um, he was apparently between uh, Mac Edwards and um, Charles Manson in prison, and he said they were both telling you know really strange stories while he was in there. So this person, this fellow inmate, says that there was upwards of twenty stories that. Uh, Mac Edwards had told him about these kids. It also later comes out that in letters written to his wife, because yes, he was married, he said, quote, I was going to add one more to the first statement, and that was the Tommy Bowman boy that disappeared in Pasadena, but I felt I would really make a mess of that one, so I left him out of it, end of quote. Now, why did he confess to anything at all? Well, when those two girls escaped, he was extremely concerned that they would be able to identify him and therefore everything, everything would end up coming unraveled. I guess he wanted to control the end and I guess ultimately he does. They found three of the six bodies he confessed to, so they charged him with just the three that they could ultimately prove. But he wanted to make it super easy. He pleaded guilty to the three counts and asked the jury to execute him. He did get his request and was sentenced to death. The issue was that Edwards wanted immediate death and that couldn't exactly happen because there are, of course, mandatory appeals that had to be exhausted, as always in death sentences. Even before his trial, Edwards attempted suicide twice. The first attempt was by slashing his stomach with a razor blade, and the second was by ingesting an overdose of tranquilizer. Neither attempt was successful, obviously, and after his conviction, Edwards, Edwards was sentenced to uh, do his time at San Quentin. I believe I read somewhere that there were actually seven total attempts, um, which would mean that there were five more attempts after his conviction. I went back to see if I can find where it said this, but I couldn't find it anywhere. So I'm not sure what the exact number is. Multiple places said two. Um, there might have been seven total attempts. I'm not sure. But obviously, um, these attempts, you know, all of the attempts failed until he didn't fail. On October 30th of 1971, Edwards completed suicide by hanging himself in his San Quentin cell with a television cord. He wasn't willing to wait through the appeals process, obviously. Um, and with his death, 
the knowledge of the exact number of victims and their locations died too, which is why no new information has surfaced in many of these cases. His victim demographic seems to be between the ages of 6 and 16, male or female. All believe victims are Caucasian or Caucasian presenting, and the earliest admitted killing was in 1953, and he turned himself in on March 5th of 1970. He was 53 when he died, so he would have began killing at the age of 35 by his own account. It is highly likely that any of his victims would have been close to where he was living and or working at any given time. So there is no telling how many victims there actually are, and sadly, a lot are probably buried beneath roadways in California, and they, might, they may never be located. So sadly, that is where we conclude this episode. Um, seven missing children, one horrible, disgusting, vile human being, and not a whole lot of answers. But that's what we're used to here. Not a whole lot of answers. So that's part two in California. The piece of shit serial killer Mac Ray Edwards and all of his poor, adorable um, child victims. Uh, it's, this was really um, sickening for me to research. I wasn't a huge fan of going through the cases, especially the details, uh, which I didn't tell you a lot of the details in some of these cases, uh, but it is quite vile. Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's that whole mess. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed my telling of it at least because I don't I don't know if you could enjoy hearing about the things that he did. If you did like my telling of that and hopefully I put enough, you know, respect um, in this case for the the poor victims. But if you did enjoy my telling of these cases, would you do me an absolute favor? And go follow, like, rate, and or review this podcast on whatever platform it is that you listen to, listen on. If any of those are even an option, um, give me as many stars as you possibly can. Um, so that way, you know, this podcast can climb up the ranks. Uh, I appreciate everybody who has done that for me thus far. I really do appreciate it. Uh, thank you for continuing to listen, and I hope that you continue to tune in and hear more tellings. Uh, thank you so much for just being loyal supporters and listeners to this podcast. Um, I do, because I did forgot, forget to mention it uh, on the last episode, uh, I did update the Facebook page, so it is no longer never to be seen again on Facebook. It is actually now State of Missing. You can find that on Facebook. Uh, the link or the web address will be in the show notes. Everything is usually in the show notes uh, if, you, you, if you pay attention. I did put the new updated uh, Facebook page in last week's show notes. I just forgot to mention it. 
If you have any case suggestions, as always, you can send me a message on Facebook. You can go to Instagram and send me a message there at the uh, at State of Missing Pod on Instagram. You can also send me an email at uh, Never To Be Seen Again Podcast at gmail.com or Never To Be Seen Again Pod at gmail.com. Both of those email addresses will be in the show notes. Uh, I would highly, highly appreciate any case suggestions that you have. Um, I'm going to be working on the third part of California. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you it's going to be in a week because I I can't make that promise anymore. Uh, But maybe two weeks it'll be out and then we'll move on to a different state. Uh, I'm really, I'm really kind of over California at this point, af- especially after uh, all this Macri Edwards shit. <laughs> so um, we got one more part of California, and then we're gonna be moving on, maybe somewhere colder. Truthfully, we're almost uh, completely done with the western part of the United States. Uh, there's only I'm looking. I have a map where I keep track of it. Um, but once we get done with California, uh, the only the only state that we have left in the West is Washington. Uh, but I think I'm gonna put that off for a while. We need to knock down some of the eastern states, uh, some of the central states as well. So I don't know. Uh, we, I might just pull out of the hat, pull out of a hat for the uh, next state. We'll just have to see how it goes. But I, I have to get through uh, part three in California first. So thanks everyone for listening. Um, Please come back for next episode for part three in California. Until then though, thank you for listening and you'll be hearing me then.